Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I want to kick the year off by discussing one of the topics that I'm most passionate about, and that is the subject of pro-life strategy. Now, most of you will know that I serve as communications director for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, and we work year in and year out to reach Canadians with the truth about abortion, what abortion actually is, because abortion is not about a what, abortion is about a who. Every single individual abortion ends the life of a unique individual human being who has never existed before and will never exist again. I actually uh, wrote an entire book on pro-life strategy some years back, I believe in 2017, called Seeing is Believing, Why Our Culture Must Face the Victims of Abortion. And in that capacity, I work with uh, pro-lifers across North America and around the world, especially on the issue of pro-life strategy and how best to reach out uh, to our populations in an increasingly post-Christian culture, at least here uh, in the West. And some of you may have read a column that I wrote uh, last year on a new video that was released by Protect Life Michigan. And that video uh, was called Our Strategy to Win the Pro-Life Fight. It can be found on YouTube over at their uh, YouTube page, Protect Life Michigan. And it's only a six-minute video, but it, it, it's, it's really incredibly well done. It lays out exactly how pro-life activists should be responding to the culture, especially in a post-Roe United States, where there is a non-stop, almost blizzard of disinformation and outright deceit about abortion, about the pro-life movement, about the child in the womb. And a lot of groups are trying to figure out, well, where, where do we go from here? Because uh, a number of different strategies have been used in different individual statewide referendums. We've had multiple people on this show over the last couple of years to talk about the strategies uh, that are being used in these referendums. I did an entire uh, monologue podcast last year after the vote in Ohio detailing some of the mistakes I think that were made and some of the things that should be done going forward um, based on um, extensive conversations with other pro-life leaders, including many pro-life leaders who are on the ground. But I wanted to to kick the year off talking about the strategy to win the pro-life fight, this video released by Protect Life Michigan. And so to do that, I invited on Kristen Paulo, who's the executive director of Protect Life Michigan, which is one of my favorite pro-life groups. I had the privilege last year of speaking at their annual gala dinner. And uh, we at CCBR have worked extensively with their team. And and we find that we we share a common vision in, in, in striving towards effectiveness at changing hearts and minds, pushing the Overton window and accepting that the principles of social reform uh, may be uncomfortable, but in the end really will save lives. Some of you may recognize Kristen Paul's name because this is not the first time that she has been on this podcast. She's one of a handful of pro-life leaders who's been on several times to discuss issues like this, but I invited her on to talk about their video, to talk about what they're doing in Michigan and to talk about how she sees the post-row landscape in the United States and what the pro-life movement should be doing forward. And so here's my conversation with the executive director of Protect Life Michigan, Kristen Paul. So Kristen, uh, you were on fairly recently and you've been on the podcast a couple of times. And this time what I want to talk about is the strategy that you unveiled with Protect Life Michigan's team on your new video explaining what your strategy is, a strategy that we at the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform share in our own Canadian context uh, in the American Abortion Wars post-Dobbs. So without further introduction, maybe just kind of lay out um, what led to you making the video and what's in it. Yeah, so what led to making this video was really working with people like you, Jonathan. There's so much that you have done to teach us 
more effective strategies and tactics over the years. And here at this moment in Michigan, after Proposal 3, I think so many people, good pro-life people, are asking, what's next? What do we do? What works? Because it seems like what we've been doing isn't working. And we're seeing that in a lot of states across the country who are having their own constitutional amendments on abortion. And so we wanted to respond to those questions and offer a strategy that has been proven to work. I mean, we've seen it ourselves over and over and over again in tens of thousands of conversation. So you guys up in Canada have done studies on this. We've seen it in social reform movements for hundreds of years. Uh, and so that's what really motivated us to put this strategy video together. And we've been so overwhelmed by the positive response that we've gotten from it. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. The video is incredibly well done. Um, we'll, we'll link it below this, and I've already written about it at LifeSite once. Um, I thought it was one of the best video um, apologetics for using abortion victim photography that I've seen. Maybe kind of explain, like, when you first got involved in the pro-life movement, would it be fair to say you were suspicious, not necessarily opposed, but definitely very suspicious of the tactics when you started out? Yeah, that is definitely fair to say. I I started out in very different circles when I was just 15 years old. And in many ways, I was politically minded, but not so sure I was an activist, if that makes sense. But over time, I, I shadowed outreach with organizations like Created Equal. I had the Genocide Awareness Project come to my college and skipped a couple classes to be able to be there and be a part of that. And I think at, at some point I had to make a decision about what do I really value? Do I value doing the most important thing or do I value doing what makes me comfortable as a pro-life person? And I think my convictions have led me to say, we need to follow the most uh, effective strategies Go where the data tells us to do, go do the things that work to change people's minds. And and who cares if I am uncomfortable in the process, right? No, and that's interesting because one of the things that we've done at CCBR, and I know that uh, our mutual friends at Created Equal have done the same thing, is the reason we we use abortion victim photography in our outreach is, is because it works. Our principle is effectiveness. And so I think there is a moral case um, for abortion victim photography that Dr. Monica Miller of Citizens for a Pro-Life Society makes very powerfully. And um, I, I, I do very much resonate with her, ex, her explanation, which we can get into later. But for me, really, it was, what are the most powerful educational tools we have to save preborn children from being killed? And anything that is not unbiblical or immoral is on the table. So as the, those, those are my boundaries. My boundaries are not, am I going to upset people? Am I going to disturb people? It's, it has to be moral and ethical and inside those boundaries, sort of anything goes. And I've done every form of pro-life work with the sole exception of I've never worked inside a crisis pregnancy center, but every form of outreach and educational um, work I've, I've, I've done and it's just there was simply no comparison between the impact of doing abortion victim photography and the impact of doing other kinds of work. So on campus, 
you could set up a petition, you could try to get people to talk about abortion, and people simply wouldn't. And then we'd set up a display in the middle of campus, and the entire campus would be talking about abortion for, for the length of our stay. Women would cancel their abortions, people would change their minds. I've experienced this personally hundreds of times. Was that your experience too, when you were shifting from um, non-visual-based projects to more visual-based projects? Yes, and I have a great story as an example. So a handful of years ago, we started doing more outreach. Protect Life Michigan works on college campuses. We're on all the major universities here. Uh, We have a lot of pro-life groups that are partnered with us on their college campuses. And we started doing outreach at those schools, but never with abortion victim imagery. Okay. So we had cemetery, of the innocents, or like a giant free speech ball, uh, roses laid out on campus, those sorts of things. So somebody at Create Equal, it may have been Seth Dreher, said, we're coming to Michigan for a few days and, you know, we'll track and report how many people we talk to, how many minds we change, just kind of compare uh, what Create Equal is doing with abortion victim imagery on campus versus these other displays that we're doing. So we had very similar displays, large scale, same size universities. And I think they outnumbered us 98 to one in mind changes <laughs> over the course of those three days. And it was through that that I said, okay, we may not be using the most strategic methods possible. And I needed to see that, that it worked because that was what moved me beyond. Okay. I I might have a few people who don't like that. I use this because none of us want to see a human body destroyed. It's not a comfortable thing to stand next to, but if, if it causes someone to change their mind about abortion, then that's ultimately what matters. And that's what we see. We don't see people any more mad with these displays versus others. We track all of it. But the number of minds that we change with these pictures, even more so with these videos, when we show video, it's incredible. Um, 30% on average of college students will change their minds about abortion right on the spot. People think that's impossible, but they can come to campus with me and see it happen firsthand. It's real. What's wild to me is, is I, I think that a lot of people, especially in, in Christian churches, are unaware of the extent to which most people have no idea what abortion actually is. That because they come from inside the pro-life bubble, whether it's Catholic or Protestant, their assumption is that, you know, the real problem here is that they just need to be told it's a baby. The real problem here is that they just need to know the resources exist. The real problem is that we need to, you know, really lean into explaining um, the biology of, of, of conception to them. Um, but the reality is that in the United States, and this is true in Canada, and, and, and in Canada, 80% of people don't even know what our law is, is that the term abortion itself although it's the center of probably the greatest culture war that has defined American politics, basically since the 1970s, there's no other single issue that has defined presidential races, uh, Supreme court nominations, state and federal level appointments and races. Like it's actually kind of insane when you consider the extent to which abortion has shaped the way America looks both internally and externally now for well over half a century. And that most Americans don't actually have any clear picture of what it is that's being debated. And so I was in uh, Washington, D.C. the week that Roe v. Wade, uh, weekend Roe v. Wade fell. 
And I was there with Mark Harrington of Create Equal and a whole bunch of other pro-lifers were there and we were kind of discussing things. And some people were talking about like, well, what do we do next? And one of the things I said was, I don't know what we mean by next. Right now, abortion is going to be in the headlines essentially every single day. Because now that all these fights have percolated down to the state levels, to municipal levels with, you know, um, like sanctuaries for the unborn, etc., the primary task of the pro-life movement is to define what abortion is in the minds of Americans. Because at the end of the day, if abortion is health care, uh, and we say things like women deserve better, the women are going to say, well, why don't we decide what we deserve? Thank you very much. And even if women do deserve better, who really cares? They're going to say, well, we still would like the option if it comes down to it. So yes. if we spend all of our time attempting to deal with peripheral issues, um, we have two major problems. Uh, problem one is that we look dishonest and hypocritical because everybody knows that the only reason we do what we do is because of abortion. And so when we pretend that it isn't about abortion, um, we're not pouring millions of dollars into referendums and spending our lives on the streets because of some other peripheral issue. We're not. And everybody knows it. It's what we call being too clever by half. It's just not believable. The second problem is that if abortion doesn't kill a baby, then abortion laws are cruel. If abortion doesn't end a life, then what business do we have telling a woman what she can or cannot do with an inanimate blob of cells or with a non-human form? We don't. The only thing that justifies abortion laws that a decent percentage of Americans think are cruel is because abortion is the thing that's actually cruel. And so if we don't help people understand what abortion is, we lose the fight. Essentially, whoever gets to define that word wins the culture war over abortion and yet there are so many uh, pro-lifers who don't seem to realize that that word does not mean for the majority of Americans what it means to people like us. Does that make sense? It does. And I think you're getting right to the heart of why we see abortion victim imagery work. Because every human being understands that violence against other innocent human beings is wrong. And so we're cutting right to the chase by addressing that and showing them what's really happening that is so covered up and whitewashed by this billion dollar abortion industry. They used every lie in the book to distract from that and hide it. And it disappoints me when I see our own movement try to hide the victims as well. I think we need to center them because it, it cuts through all of the rhetoric and, and it is written on our very conscience as human beings to reject violence against others, right? And I think especially in so many ways, younger generations are growing more and more progressive, but they are... They are still people of justice who believe that violence against others is wrong. And by showing the reality of abortion, we can tap into that worldview, even if they're different than us in many other ways with what they believe on religion and politics. They believe violence against others is wrong. And showing them abortion helps them realize that abortion is an act of violence against an innocent human being and that there has to be a better way. Yeah, I don't know why only a couple of years after the George Floyd video set the world on fire for six months, people still would make the argument that imagery of injustice isn't effective at motivating people. Um, so I want to kind of talk about um, the pro-life movement's response to it in general <clears throat> and then get into the very positive reaction to the video, which has been very heartening to me. I've seen it everywhere. Uh, some groups that I, I didn't know would be so supportive have sent it out. I do think your video came, as I've told you before, at a moment 
um, in the history of the pro-life movement uh, where people are looking around for answers. There's been a string of, what is it now, 13 straight losses. The uh, the post-Dobbs era, the first couple of months were great, right, as trigger laws kicked in and a bunch of states um, had legislation ready to go in places like Texas and the Deep South. Um, but since then, it's been a lot more difficult, and one of the biggest fights has been about messaging to begin with. And so when I look at the pro-life movement, I kind of divide the critics of abortion victim photography into a a few groups. The first and and by far largest groups are people who just don't think that it works. And because as the video explains, and as I've written about before myself, um, they're confusing marketing with social reform. Um, Social reform is turning people off of something. Um, It's exposing an injustice, whereas marketing is trying to attract somebody to something. And if you judge what we do, by marketing standards, um, it will fail every time um, because it's the wrong standard to judge it with. And so a lot of people, I think, just need to have that clarified and then they need to be shown the evidence that it works. And I think they're entitled to a comprehensive answer on that. The second group of people, there are some people who simply, I believe, are responding in bad faith, who despite a massive amount of evidence provided, simply say, well, I don't believe all of this evidence. And therefore, thousands of pro-life activists who attest to thousands of minds changed, you know, data independently collected and verified, um, babies that are saved, somehow, the only way they can be right is if none of that actually happened. Um, your video, I think, very much responds to the good faith actors. Would that be, would that be a good uh, assumption? I think that's true. And we wanted to create it because I think there's there are so many people who have questions, legitimate questions about does this work? How, what have you seen? And and we wanted to provide an answer for that, that any group can use. And we're grateful that so many people and organizations have partnered with us to get this video out there. Another question um, that I had, and you've mentioned something on this before. So it's something I kind of wanted to delve into on this podcast is the fact that it's, it actually doesn't cost you much socially to be pro-life if you're only doing the sort of thing people approve of, right? Um, nobody's going to think you're a terrible person or scream at you or dump a cup of coffee on your car if you're counseling women at a crisis pregnancy center. Um, nobody in your church is going to think that you're a radical or an extremist or maybe going a bit overboard if that's the sort of thing that you're doing. And so there's sort of a spectrum of pro-life work. But what we've seen post-Roe, and I think this was true before, but I think it's really becoming clear to a lot of people, is that the task of the educational arm of the pro-life movement, at least, is to be pushing that Overton window to make a wider um, range of, of things acceptable for discussion, to normalize perspectives that we see very clearly have not have not been normalized. How do we get across uh, to pro-lifers that, especially in the coming years, it's going to cost us socially to identify as pro-life and to couple that identification with effective outreach that actually persuades people? I know for people like me, the first step was realizing that it did work and then being willing to actually try it myself. Um, or to come along organizations that were using the most effective strategies so that I could learn from them. And so I think that willingness to have an open mind and to follow where the data leads on, you know, what's working in this post row world uh, to change people's minds is, is really important. And I do think there's an element of needing to be comfortable with the social tension, right? Um, I think there's a lot of people and organizations out there who want to win, 
without the social tension that's required to win. And we need to become comfortable with the idea that we need a lot more social tension on abortion in order to ever see victory. And you brought up the fact that we've had a lot of social tension on it for 50 years and we need that to continue, but it's time to dial it up further. And I think especially when we're losing so many state battles, we have to make people uncomfortable with abortion. It's interesting because Greg Cunningham always had a saying. So Greg Cunningham uh, of the Center for Bioethical Reform, for the listeners who might not have heard of him, did a lot of the initial groundbreaking research looking at various social reform uh, movements from the abolitionists under William Wilberforce all the way to the present day and kind of identifying which tactics were common to each movement. The movements were all very different, but there were tactics that you could see all the way through. But he also pointed out, um, um, to to, uh, continue from what you're saying, that in every single movement, in order to affect cultural change. First, they had to expose the injustice, but then they had to accept the resulting pushback and persecution before they could see success, right? And this is what all of the major nonviolent social reform movements said, right? It's like first you, uh, like, you know, first they hate you, for, then they laugh at you, then, then, then you win. Um, that was our, our Arthur Schopenhauer, the famous philosopher, but nobody wants to be laughed at and nobody wants to accept the vicious persecution. They just want to win without doing that. And that's very understandable. That would be, that would be my preference. Um, I'd love to win and move on to other stuff because, you know, dealing with the reality that babies are being killed every day um, is, is, is often a pretty heavy thing to carry around. But at the same time, I find myself, um, so encouraged by the fact that we get to see little incremental gains every day. Like when you can go to bed at night and know that because of the work your organization's doing, the country, the state, the province is a little bit more pro-life than it was when you woke up in the morning. Um, you can kind of say, I did my, I did my very best. Um, and sure, there's always a, a lot of pushback, but I, I do think even less than people might suspect when they were out. Like, were you nervous the first time you did this? Pro- did, did any of these projects? Of course. Oh, you <laughs> I'm were still nervous sometimes. <laughs> I am, but you know what? I was shocked by it was not the pushback from people or people being angry about us uncovering the reality of abortion. It was really the apathy that I was shocked by that someone could walk by a picture of a dead human body and have no reaction at all. That's what shocked me most of all. I think we have this perception that, oh, this is a unsightly way to go about pro-life activism that people just won't tolerate. Uh, but the reality is their, their apathy is so much stronger than we even realize as a movement. So defining the word abortion being one of the most important things, and this is a conclusion, by the way, that an increasing number of people are coming to, like Ben Shapiro said this right on his podcast, that um, the best the best argument against abortion is a photo of a dead baby, because as Greg Cunningham said, when you hold up a photograph of an aborted baby, abortion protests itself. I think more and more people are coming to that conclusion. One of the longstanding apologists for this, this strategy, of course, is, is Scott Klusendorf of Life Training Institute, whose new edition of The Case for Life just came out. And he actually, in his post-Ohio podcast, said the same thing. He's like, how insane do you have to be to face the number of losses that we face and say, we need to cover up the best evidence that we have right. uh, to prove our point? And how can, we, how can we constantly, day by day, take the accusation that we're cruel knowing that what they're doing is decapitating, dismembering, and disemboweling children in the womb, but then not show that evidence to people who are going to accept the accusations of our opponents if we don't do that. 
right? The other side, the bad guy's strategy is to cover up the reality of abortion. We need to expose it. <laughs> no, precisely. So uh, looking into a couple of the arguments that the video addressed, right? There's the strategic argument, which again, I think that people in good faith, even if they're not suited um, to doing that kind of work, I don't think that everybody needs to be doing the kind of work that your organization and my organization and Create Equal and things like that do. I think obviously the SBA list, um, working with politicians, can't be out in the streets with photographs. I think Absolutely. the same thing is true for for plenty of crisis pregnancy centers. They're, they're in a different arm of the movement, and so I'm not expecting them to do it. It would be nice if they didn't criticize us for it, but like they're a different arm. Yes. But aside from the effectiveness arguments, there's also the more moral argument. And and the video doesn't address that in full, but it definitely addresses it uh, through uh, the work of Dr. Monica Miller. Like, are these images disrespectful? So even if they're effective, are they disrespectful? How did you guys deal with that question? It's something that we have heard a lot recently from good friends and supporters in Michigan and Dr. Monica Miller has done an amazing job giving us a moral ethic around this question of should we use abortion victim imagery? And she really argues that these young people have a right to be shown that because the abortion industry is intentionally designed to hide their humanity, to hide that they ever existed, that we have a responsibility to tell their story, to show their face to the world, to show their humanity, to try to write history and, and fix this massive injustice that's happening all around us. Yeah, there's a real, like, we're in a moment right now um, where the pro-life movement recognizes that something needs to be done. There's kind of a moment of reckoning where uh, multiple states have lost. I don't quite agree with some of the analysis or like, look, we lost in Ohio, a deep red state. It's like, well, I'm 35 and I remember Ohio being a swing state. So I wouldn't say deep red, but at the same time, the losses need to be kind of grappled with. But two stories really caught my attention um, in the past couple of weeks. Of course, there's the story out of Texas um, who, where a woman is essentially calling the state of Texas cruel because she has a child who was, a, who was diagnosed with trisomy 18. I believe the abortion would be at 21 weeks. Um, so we're talking about a, a little baby with arms and legs and waving around can feel pain. Um, uh, it does not necessarily have a death sentence. Um, the, the essentially what, what most abortion activists say is not compatible with life, which is their analysis, not a medical diagnosis. Um, and then there's another story, uh, out of the, out of Europe where the European court of human rights just ruled that a woman had been cruelly treated because she was refused an abortion. And the only reason she wanted the abortion was because her baby was diagnosed with Down syndrome. And the first thing that drove me insane was like the ableism inherent in all of this, the eugenic aspect of all this is just not commented on at all, right? You have abortion activists openly saying in the press who would take their word as law that it's cruel for a woman to have a child with Down syndrome. It's cruel for a woman to allow her child to trisomy 18 uh, to exist, to live, to not be, you know, crushed and torn apart. Um, I, it's sort of like compassionate eugenics is the, is the case that they're making, right? We're killing them for their own good. And it's cruel to not let them kill these babies because they're disabled. But the other thing that frustrates me is that our best response would be to show them a video of what an abortion at 21 weeks looks like. And it kills me to get accused of something while the best tools we have for proving that we're being gaslit and that the precise opposite is true, most of the movement in some quarters are saying, well, no, 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 don't do that. That's too far. 
Are you kidding me? What do you mean that's too far? Again, we're we're telling the story of the victims. We're showing accurate information about what abortion is when at its heart, it's whitewashed and covered up. Women are lied to um, about the experience it will be for them and also what happens to their unborn child in the situation. I have an incredible story. I hope I'm in sh- I'm able to share in detail in the near future, but I had a friend who was deeply involved in the abortion industry who just recently left because of how ableist they are. And it, she saw these situations happening and just could not reconcile that with her worldview that it's wrong to, um, intentionally kill innocent human beings, especially the weakest and most vulnerable, right? Yeah. So when, when you're looking at the response, so I I know that whenever a video like this is released, because I've been debating people about the strategy, well, I have to say um, I'm very encouraged in Canada. There's very little argument anymore in the movement um, about whether or not the images work. There's still plenty of people who disagree with us, but there's not really much of a public debate about that anymore. Um, in the States, I think it kind of depends on on where you are, um, even though a lot of the the projects, I think, were pioneered by people like Mark Harrington and Greg Cunningham and championed by folks like Scott Klusendorf, who are sort of veterans in the movement. But what kind of response have you gotten uh, to the video so far? Because I know you guys had to be nervous about it because Protect Life Michigan's a campus organization. You guys are also an increasingly very large and professional um, operation. I got the chance to to speak at your guys' um, um, banquet dinner and it was like it's a packed ballroom, right? You have a lot of supporters. And so to come out and say, we know this might be controversial, but we're going to do it because it's effective would have been a bit nerve wracking. So how, how's the response been so far? It was a bit nerve wracking. If I'm totally honest, I'm a people pleaser. and <laughs> I know Wrong business. there, there are a handful of pro-life people who, you know, have their own opinion about things and maybe you wouldn't be totally on board with this, but honestly, we have been, um, really overwhelmed by the positive response. There's always trolls on social media who are, you know, mostly pro-choice people leaving comments, fighting about things. But we've gotten so many emails and stories from people of other examples in social reform of people being uh, have their having their minds changed through imagery, um, and have been just really overwhelmed by the response. I think, like you said, most people maybe don't understand why we do this or that it works. I think there's this perception that we are um, like arguing with people, right? We're trying to just make people angry. But when they understand that this is paired with a lot of loving, truthful dialogue. It's paired with effective arguments. I mean, we're ministering to people when we're on campus who are admitting that they've had abortions that they've never told anyone about, but they'll come up to us next to, you know, a picture of a dead baby and share um, that they had this experience. We're ministering to those and uh, to see the overwhelming positive response we've had from people because they finally have language to these questions that they've asked and they've had it addressed uh, in such a thorough way has been really encouraging. And I, I just want to say thank you to the many people, Jonathan, you contributed to this, Created Equal did, Dr. Monica Miller, we had countless other organizations help us launch it. We can't take credit for it at all because I was the girl who was against using abortion victim imagery. And I feel like 
I, I had to do something like this to course correct uh, and to really show my gratitude for the hard work that has been put in by so many people for so many years. And I just help, hope that this is one more tool that we can all use to help people see a more effective strategy moving forward. Yeah, I think it's a very important catalyst in the ongoing discussion about what to do next. And, and with that, I guess my final question would be, so what is uh, what does Protect Life Michigan's plans look like for 2024? The ones that you can share publicly, of course. We do have some pretty big plans for 2024. Um, we are working on launching our first full-time summer internship modeled after you guys up in Canada with the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Essentially, we're going to be um, utilizing the summer months. There's nobody on campus, right? So instead, what can we do? We're giving young people the opportunity to work full-time in, in an effective pro-life organization and to send upon a community and change minds within that community. Uh, we have really big plans in that regard that we're going to be launching in the coming months, but we want to test what we're seeing on campus, see if we can apply it large scale to a community in Michigan and uh, see if we can come away with a run book for other organizations to use, to take these strategies and use data and polling and, other tools to change as many minds as possible, because that's where we are now, especially in Michigan. Abortion is written into our constitution. If we do not win people's hearts and minds, we won't be able to change that constitution. So that's the next step. And we are employing the best strategies we have to change the course of our state. Where can people find your guys's website? You can check us out at protectlifemi.org. And that video is under the about section on our strategy page. I'd encourage everyone to go view it. Thanks so much for coming on again. Thank you, Jonathan. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Kristen Paulo of Protect Life Michigan. If you'd like to check out this podcast and listen to other similar episodes, please head over to lifesitenews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can find our content there. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you have a great week.